Welcome to Poetry Spotlight, presented by the Ohio Poetry Association. I am your host, Jeremy Jusek, and with us today is Grace Curtis. Grace Curtis is the author of three collections of poetry, Everything Gets Old and The Shape of a Box, and her chapbook, the, Sur the, the Surly Bonds of Earth, which was selected by poet Stephen Dunn as the 2010 winner of the Letter Sauvage Chapbook Contest. Her poetry has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize and Best of the Net. Grace has prose and poetry in such journals as Southwester, The Baltimore Review, Waccamaw Literary Journal, On the Seawall, The Galway Review, and others. She lives in Waynesville, Ohio. Her website is gracecurtispoetry.com. Grace, thank you so very much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Jeremy. I'm so happy to be here and I'm excited to be doing this and to uh, be talking to all my Ohio poetry friends, maybe Ohio and beyond, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm sure we have listeners outside of Ohio. I hope we do. <laughs> <laughs> so to get us started, would you mind reading a poem? Sure. I'm going to read one called Ober's Paradox. It's from my first book, The Shape of a Box, uh, Ober's Paradox. It's an important observation. The night sky is black. If space is infinite, then every point in the sky must eventually point to a star. The universe, not infinitely big, not infinitely old, must end at the edge of the yard proof that a river stops at its bend, that black does not evade but absorb, that gray is immersion leaning toward the reflection of everything, that a heart yearns for what it thinks it leans toward. Someone once said to me, Gracie, all your answers are inside of you, ignorance leaning toward knowledge. What is left depends upon what reflects, what photons are taken in, what photons are reflected back. If you combine red, green, and blue crayons, you have black leaning toward night, each color sharing equally in the argument against infinity. Oh, it's beautiful. That's beautiful. And, and I love, I love what, you know, your, your poetry is so observational. I, I, I can, I can witness this in my head. And, and you had once said in an interview that you were largely unconcerned with judgment, that your, your preference was to write from an observational place. W would you mind talking a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, I have to kind of think about this for a second. I, I, I think I'm just in, intrigued and curious about everything, particularly about physical phenomenon and, and uh, you know, various things in nature. And so I, I lean toward writing poetry. It, you're right, that's kind of observational in nature and less uh, about things, less kind of judgmental. I try not to be judgmental. I'm terrible at writing, for example, statement poetry or political poetry, that kind of thing. Um, I, I know there are a lot of people that do that very well. It's just, you know, it would just turn into an ugly rant if I tried it. And so I love to just sort of focus on what I see in nature. Uh, although I don't feel like a nature poet, it feels a little more meditative to me. 
an observational, you're right. I think that's a good term. Sure, sure. And, and so I guess, I guess a follow-up question might be like, how, how do you express yourself? Like that, that expression, because I, I, I also struggle with, because I, I, there's a lot of, I, there's a lot of things that I want to say, but when I do, I write an op-ed, you know, I, I send mm -hmm. out something to a paper or something, you know, and it's difficult to be someone who is, is railing against the system, you know, like a, like a, you know, the beat poets, like the beat poet generation, that was what right. their, their MO was. So what do you think that says about expression? Do you think there are limits to expression? I, I think that depends on what you mean by expression. I, you know, when we talk about expression, you know, maybe we're talking about the sharing of ideas or the express, expression of emotion or in, uh, expression of a kind of intensity or, um, and, you know, to that, depending on that definition of expression and what expression is to each of us. And I, I, this is getting a little obscure, maybe. I, sorry about that. But, um, you know, depending on that, what, whatever that is, uh, I, don't, I don't think my poetry is so much of an expression of me. It's just a product. I, that sounds so... Uh, <laughs> harsh but it's just it's a product of what i put down on paper and i guess uh maybe technically that is expression but i don't i tr i i have tried even to write a bit more emotion into my poems um so for example if you think back at the Olber's paradox that's a strictly observational uh, of a phenomenon called Olber's paradox, where actually there, uh, you know, it's kind of a scientific uh, term. I wrote the line. There's a line in there that says uh, that a heart yearns for what it thinks it leans toward. And I put that line in there because I thought it needed to be a bit softer than, you know, people need to be able to connect with your poetry. So I'll find that I tend to write lines like that intentionally to make it more human, more personal, uh, perhaps more emotional, if, if you can follow any of that. I do. And, you know, I've, I've been running a workshop for a while and it's one of the things I've noticed is there's a line between where people write things personally for themselves and how they prepare something for an audience. And I think that there's a division there. I think there's a personal aspect, but there's also a like a public acceptance that you have to worry about once you start pushing your work out. And I feel like that divide might be there if that's what you're saying. Yeah, it's it's kind of that way. It's just I I don't I I try not to write a lot of uh, I I don't not not because I try, but I just don't write a lot of narrative type poetry or poetry that uh, is deeply personal. Although the last book that I wrote, uh, Everything Gets Old, is that the first poem and the title poem in that poem is actually a love poem. Uh, it's about 
a relationship between two people and you know and how they navigate the world <laughs> so it's not but but there it's not uh it's not very emotional it, it's it's sort of how are we navigating together in the world yeah and, and i loved that collection thank you for sending it to me it, it's a beautiful collection you're welcome you're welcome amazing everything gets old i love that book um and, and i actually wanted to ask you a question about that collection because there are a lot of moments because you know, going off the premise, you're, you're an observational poet. You like observing things that are in process. And I think process is a good word because there are moments that felt like there was, it was a celebration of journey, not the destination, or, or maybe a celebration of process. So like Lady in the Iron Mask, you have a very serious poem and it's very personal to you. And, and you know, by the end, I, I was feeling, it was, it was a very effective poem. Um, e and a e effective and affective it, it but it, it starts with the description of torque on screws which I thought was fascinating and first snow follows the freeze of a temperate ecosystem in in a systematic process type way and so I'm wondering is this celebration of process intentional is it a byproduct of your observational style is it both or is it neither is it coming from another place? I think it's both of those things. I think it's, um, it's simply how I, how I write and how I, you know, how I uh, prepare my poetry, how I, how I write poetry. I, I write from, uh, you're right, from process. The, if you think about the the winter process, the, the beginning of the first snow, that poem, which is in the collection, uh, that's, that's the process of, it, it ends up being the process of a hawk, <laughs> uh, you know, trying to make a lunge at these small birds at the feeder and missing. And, um, you know, and if you, if you go back, there's a line in that poem because I thought this is strictly a poem about a hawk, about birds, about winter, about snow. There's a line in that poem that says something about uh, our red pebble hearts as a pilot light was that was the line that was meant to personalize that poem and bring it into sort of the human sphere uh, and to uh, create uh, I think uh, I want to call that maybe a high touch moment in the poem uh, versus this sort of uh, functional aspect of the poem. And for me, the po poetry is about language and the manipulation of language. It's about the creation of art. And it's about, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things versus and this is just for me. It, it's only what works for me. I, I'm not suggesting that everyone should write this way or that, you know, I tend not to write about, although you're right, the woman in the iron mask is a very personal story uh, from my, from the poet's standpoint, from my standpoint uh, about my sister and, and, and taking her to her radiation treatments. So. So. From a craft standpoint, um, what do you mean by high touch moment? What, what, how would you differentiate a high touch moment and a low touch moment? Well, 
if you go back to Olber's paradox again, if you look at that poem, and I want to be careful, I'm not prescribing anything to anybody. This I'm, I'm just letting you in on my poetry secrets if you want to know the truth. But a high touch moment is that line that says, a heart yearns for what it thinks it leans toward. That's a high touch moment. That is a moment I hope resonates on a very personal level uh, with, you know, with someone. And in the poem about the first snow, the high touch moment is that, uh, you know, something about our red pebble hearts are our pilot lights in that freezing frigid environment. So it's, uh, it's those kind of moments in a poem, and that sounds so arbitrary, <laughs> and so um, you know. And sometimes there will be, uh, I I will go back and look at a poem and say it's got to have more high touch in it. It's too cold. It's too uh, it's too abstract. It doesn't resonate. It it needs a higher touch, a few high touch moments in it to. Uh, to connect, to enable it to connect with others who read it, hopefully who read it or hear it. Sure. So, so the 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 height is just the emotional distance. Exactly, exactly. That's all I mean is, uh, you know, the high touch is is more of an emotional impact. Sure. So when when you're approaching a poem, um, what crafting techniques do you rely on? Like, are, are there certain things that you are consciously aware of? Do you say, oh, well, this is my toolbox. I need to use these tools in this situation because I do feel cold here. Well, actually, that comes in usually more in the editing. Those kinds of, uh, you know, uh, the first, you know, you, you go through your toolbox through the editing process. You, you kind of write what you think you start out, or I start out writing, what I think is hopefully uh, a good start to a poem, a good, you know, a good first draft. I hope for a good first draft. And then I open the toolbox and I start removing excess, uh, I start removing adjectives and adverbs and excess articles. And really that, you know, one of the first things is to pare it down, to really pare it down, clean it up, all the while, you have to also be thinking, what am I saying and am I achieving something, even though I'm not clear at the start what it is I want to achieve or what the poem might achieve? Uh, am I achieving what I want to achieve or am I achieving, what am I achieving? And then you have to start saying, what am I doing in this poem? How is this poem behaving? This sounds so clinical, but for me, the editing process is extremely clinical. Um, and it's so it's like you look at it and you say, there's not very much high touch in here. This is pretty cold, pretty detached. Uh, you know, uh, it's pretty obscure. It's pretty coded or it's too accessible or it's not accessible enough. And then I start tweaking it from there. So during the editing process, the tools come out, I think. I would agree with that because I think that one of the problems, it's not a problem, but I think one of the 
situations that a lot of poets find themselves in is that they write this raw content and they feel it raw while they're writing. But then when it comes to editing, it is sterile. It is clinical. It is does feel like you're you're a doctor operating in a hospital, you know. And and you have to, you know, that that's the whole point of studying craft in the first place is learning those tools that you need for each situation. I think the more you write, though, too, this is my experience. The more you write, the better you become at coming to that stuff organically earlier on you know i think you learn through workshops and through your own assessment and so forth where the weaknesses might be in the poem where it could be strengthened or where it's strong where it's not strong and you know i think the more you write and the more you practice poetry and practice writing it the closer you get the quicker you get and that you know that's not to say every time but some poems i agonize over have agonized over for a year you know you know yeah. or uh, months or weeks you know and you go like this is not good you have to have the bravery and the stamina to set that thing aside and say it's not ready i don't know what it needs i can't tell i i just know that it's not ready and you, then you can come back to it later and voila, it's there. That's so important. I think that's a really important skill for people to have because it is it is nice to shelve a poem and come back to it like four months later because by then you've forgotten what you were trying to do and now you can address it much more objectively than you could have. Oh, exactly. You know, and yeah. then so, you know, I, I do this, I go, I'll write a poem. And so then, you know, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with the first draft, put it away and come back to it a few days later. And I go, oh man, this is crap. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> this is so bad. I just don't know. And then, you know, so you go like, okay, it's so bad. I can't even address it right now. So you put it away again, you come back to it like two weeks later and you go like, wow, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so you're just sort of on this yo-yo about is it okay is it not okay i don't know you know you just sort of hope for the best you have to get it to a place where you're happy with it and i don't get there very often it's true the best i think the best that i get is looking at a poem and saying hey you know what if i mess with it now it'll just screw it up and so i should right 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 well i mean i forget who who said it i forget what poet said it I want to say it was maybe Yates who said, someone asked him, as, did he know when a poem was done? And he said, when I die, the poem is done. <laughs> so, so there you go. You know, it's sort of like, you know, I was even rewriting some stuff <laughs> tonight. <laughs> stuff that's published, you know, so. Yeah, no, it's never done. It's never no, done. No. So out of, out of that toolbox, what are some of your favorite tools? Um, well, like I said, I mean, to me, uh, honing down the text, cleaning the text is one of my most favorite things to do because I think because it's easy for one thing, but it's also, I think that improves a poem the most. People don't realize that. The first thing I do is take 
the last line off and see how it sounds without the last line. Because I can't tell you how many poems I read that I go, this does not leave need the last line on this. That you know, there's this terrible temptation as opposed to sort of sum it all up. But you know, often it, you know, it, it's much better without that last line. And that's not always the case. But so I go through really honing the text and cleaning it up and seeing, you know, what really needs to be here. What can, what is the, how can I say the most with the least amount or the fewest amount of words? Sure, absolutely. One, one, one thing I like, of course, we're not talking, we're not talking about inspiration yet, but sometimes when I have a hard time getting started on some new work, which I'm sort of at that point right now, uh, I start collecting, it, it, on my phone, I collect words and phrases. And then sometimes I'll, pr I'll print off those words and phrases and I'll say, you must use five of these in a poem. <laughs> you know, and it, yeah. that's how arbitrary some of the work is. And so you go, when I put those kinds of constraints on myself, or you must use only five syllables per line, or you must only use, you know, when I put arbitrary constraints on myself, that's when I, I, I flourish for some reason. I, I don't know why that is. But that's a lot better to me than just starting from scratch. And well, that actually that's that's interesting because I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are to things like meter or when you write a sonnet or or some really restrictive form. Because if you look at poetic forms, you'll find hundreds. You'll I mean you'll find yeah, so many right. different from most of them you don't have never heard of even. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, you, it, it's it's really difficult to memorize them all and hats off to whoever can but like how do you feel about form then because form is essentially when you boil it down it's a set it's a set of arbitrary restrictions that forces you to be creative within those boundaries well i don't write a lot in very very strict form like uh, uh there's a new book out I'm, I'm trying to think, I, I just purchased it and it's all sonnets and uh, I don't write a lot of sonnets, but I'm so in love with these sonnets that I might try uh, to write more sonnets. Uh, what I find it more so is that the poem starts to form its own, you know, I might have an idea and start with a poem that's columnar. <laughs> like just one long column. And then I start say, let's, let's see what this looks like as, uh, uh, you know, you know, like three line poem or a four line poem, or let's see what this looks like. And then I'm forced to uh, manipulate the lines and manipulate the text around that. But I rarely start with that in mind. Now I have a friend who writes, who sits down and says, I'm going to write, you know, uh, you know, blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, and he writes in very strict form and keeps that in mind the whole time. Uh, I don't tend to do that so much and probably should do more of it, but I'm not a very, I, I don't write in form very well. But that's not to say the poem has no form. It usually has a pretty specific uh, rhythm 
and a pretty specific, uh, I don't write in rhyme, I tend not to write, but I, I, I include a lot of, uh, you know, assonance and those kinds of things within the work itself. Sure. And, so. and I, I'm curious because you, you, you went to, I think, Ashland for your MFA, is that correct? Yeah, right. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you went there and you were probably writing poems before Ashland, I assume. Um, yes. How do you think the graduate school experience changed that? Because I, I got my MFA in the last, you know, seven to eight years. And I know that there was a strong emphasis on modern poetry, which modern poetry is more confessional, free verse, you know. Um, so did, did you find that it affected your work? Uh, yes, yeah, so, you know, I, I started writing in 2005. I had written as a child and all through college and that whole thing. And I have an undergraduate degree in English and I taught high school English for a couple of years, not very long. And then I went into business and basically gave all that up, you know, but as a child, I had memorized poems. I wrote these elaborate poems, you know, in this kind of um, romantic uh, Wordsworthian type of meter and, and feeling, you know, and uh, lots of rhyme. And so I had stopped writing. And so in 2005, I went back to, to writing. And I felt like I, I was writing so much and so all, all the time. And I was working full time at that point. So I decided I needed to get an MFA because I I just felt like I was sort of behind, you know, behind on things. I didn't know where current thinking was. I didn't know anything about current or modern poetry or contemporary poetry, let's say. Uh, I didn't know what anybody was writing at that point. And I had just started to read. And, uh, you know, you, you, you don't even know what to read when you're just starting out. So I, or I didn't anyway. So I started to build my library and of poetry, and I just felt I needed uh, to go to the MFA program. I thought it would help me, and it did help me. Uh, I had the privilege of working with really fine poets. Angie Estes uh, was my advisor, and she today is one of my favorite poets. Uh, just. Uh, just a star and uh, her poetry is so gorgeous and I and and Steve Haven and some others who were in the program Peter Campion and I just uh, Kathy Winograd I mean I couldn't have been more blessed to have had the privilege of working with these poets and mentors and I know that a lot of people are kind of uh, can can tend to uh, let's, shall we say, throw shade on the MFA programs, <laughs> you know, uh, saying that they're kind of cookie cutter approaches and, and that they, you know, they're not, they're not turning out. You can't, you can't make a poet. I disagree with that. I mean, what artist doesn't train in their art form? What musician doesn't train in their art form? Why should a poet be any different than that? Uh, you know, I don't think you have to have an M MFA at all, but you have to be well read, in my opinion. You have to have studied on your own if you, you know, and uh, you have that study has to be continuous. So I think what the what it did for me was it created discipline in me. 
discipline to edit, discipline to question myself, to, uh, it, in fact, I, it took me a couple years to recover <laughs> because I, I questioned myself so much. You know, I think you have to get to a point where you stop that and you have to trust yourself a little more. Yeah, and I would agree with that. Like, I don't think an MFA is necessary, but it does, I, I've always said it does two things. One, it pressure cooks your development. So yes, you could arrive at all the conclusions you were going to anyway, if you had the same sort of focus that a program would force upon you. And two, it's guided. It, it, it allows you, you know, you can ask questions and you can have experts and, you know, any MFA program worth its salt, they're going to have people coming in to do like talks. You're going to have exposure to a wide network that extends beyond the institution. There's the, the, those benefits can't be, you know, passed up. I mean, even this, this podcast is about networking. Right. To a degree. You know what I mean? Like you, you now sure. have a voice for, for people beyond and, and the MFA program provides you that. So I, I don't, you're, you're right. Like I, that's always been a tricky thing because people will ask me my advice and I say, well, do what's right for you because I don't want to say it's the definitive answer, but it does help. I thought it did. I mean, you know, in fact, you know, there, one of the poets who has influenced me the most is Eric Pankey. And Eric Pankey is, uh, I think he is either runs the poetry section or something at uh, Georgetown University or he, you know, but he's got many books published He's an amazing poet, one of my favorite poets. And he came to read at Ashland. And I would never, I don't know if I'd ever been introduced to him otherwise. And I would say he's probably had more influence on my work than maybe anybody. I just, uh, I find his work, it's, it's con contemplative and meditative and beautiful. And, um, you know, I've, I've read everything he's ever written. And he's written a lot. And uh, so I got that out of the program. I was exposed to so many amazing poets during that time that I was there. I'm just so grateful for the program. That's excellent. You know what else is good? A good program is the Kenyan Review Program. Uh, so. That's almost as intense as an MFA program. Uh, it's a... <laughs> Uh, I think they're doing it virtually again this year, but uh, if anybody can afford to go to that program and take the time to go, it is well worth it working with people like David Baker and um, Carl Phillips. Oh my gosh, I just purchased Carl Phillips' new book. It's just so amazing. And he's a long-standing uh, participant and instructor in that program. And it, it's, it's a generative program. So you're, you're generating a lot of new work. And that's just so helpful you know, at, at some point. So how does the Kenyan Review Program work? Uh, it's a week-long residency program and you uh, meet in the mornings and you're given kind of an assignment and you go off on your own and write for the rest of the day. And then the next morning you share with the group what you worked on and uh, get some feedback and talk about it and that kind of thing. So it's basically, you're generating new work the whole time and a lot of workshops are not that way. You bring the work and get it workshopped. But in this case, you generate a lot of new work. And David Baker 
is a treasure for Ohio, as far as I'm concerned, at the Kenyon Review. And, um, you know, he just at, at uh, just a really uh, wonderful poet. I've read many of his books. And again, he's another influence. So, you know, and, and I think I think a lot of poets or, or people who want to become poets, you know, they, they're, 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 they're going to be people listening to this episode and wondering what is the benefit of that guidance? You know, what, what is, what can guidance give you? And, and so I'm curious what your answer to that might be. Um, I think, you know, I think it gives you not just the courage, but the impetus to question, to question yourself and to question your work and to say, is this really doing what I want it to do? Uh, otherwise, you're, you sort of write in a vacuum. You know, it's easy to get to write in a vacuum and just think that, you know, everything you write is the most is the most wonderful thing you've ever written. And, and I still suffer from that. You know, you have to, you know, be much more brutal with yourself. And I think that that kind of guidance and mentoring, the kind of guidance you get from those sort of workshops and from the MFA programs and from all of the programs that the Ohio Poetry Association puts together, even those quarterly meetings, I don't get to as many as I would like to, but, you know, anytime you have the chance to meet with another poet in a leadership and in, 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 in that kind of a role, uh, you know, like a seminar type role or whatever, you know, it's invaluable because you suddenly you get a new perspective and it gives you the courage to produce better work. It gives you the impetus to produce your best work and to do better. Yeah. At least that's how it's affected me. Yeah. It's like a shot of B12. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and of course these, you know, these experiences aren't universal, but it's, right. it's, right. helpful, to, it's helpful to know how someone who, who's published several books like yourself is affected by these things, these forces. I've been as, to as many uh, in recent years, you know, it's just <laughs> life events and so forth have prevented me from doing those kinds of things as much, but. Um, well, COVID's been crazy. I mean, that, yeah, uh, yeah, right. Everybody right. knows COVID. That's, <laughs> right. if you're listening to this 10 years from now, you still know about COVID. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but. Uh, and, and, you know, not all workshops work out real well, not, you know, uh, I, I, uh, I'm not as thrilled as I used to be about workshopping. Uh, sometimes I find people are, are less than forthright. They, they don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, you know, so they'll say, oh, that sounded good or, you know, and so sometimes you get, um, so I think you have to to really seek out quality, things like the Kenyan Review, I, I believe that are really high quality. And um, I'm sure there are others that are worth, uh, worth it. I'm getting ready to go to the Appalachian Writers Workshop at the Hindman Settlement House in Kentucky and work with Frank X. Walker. He's from Kentucky and I'm very excited. Just that's the reason I'm going. I just would like to work with him. 
that's the whole reason I'm going. So, so let me let me ask you this: besides hesitancy, which we all know is can be, because some people, you're right, they're they're afraid of delivering criticism because they're afraid that that criticism might not be received well or that they'll take it personally. Um, what else might be a death knell for uh, a workshop? What makes for a good workshop, I guess? <clears throat> well, I think a le the leader has a lot to do with it. You know, the leader can really uh, keep things on track and steer them. And there's a lady in Cincinnati, Pauletta Hansel, who does amazing workshops. And I think she is uh, exemplary as a, a leader who can keep keep the conversation on track and keep drawing it back to what's working in the poem, what could be stronger, what could be, you know, and so I think the leader, uh, you know, if the, if the leader is not directing people like that, then I think it, the, the, the workshop has the potential to sort of fail. Um, you know, we have a group here. It, I don't know if you've ever heard of, uh, this might be a good podcast to do sometime. It's it's the uh, the Greenville Poets. Have you ever heard of them? I have. Chuck Salmons told me about that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> they get together and spend like a day workshopping uh, their poems. And between them, they have multiple books published. And I think that's a, a that's a self-directed group. No one in the group leads it per se. And they just really are forthright with each other about what's working in the poem and what could be stronger. And they each bring something to work with. And, you know, it's so, you know, there that would be an interesting podcast is to talk to that group as a whole and just say, you know, talk to us about your process and, and how you do that. And I don't know what they've done over the pandemic, but... Um, They've been going for years. They have a whole website. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. I will keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, so how did, how did you first get interested in poetry? What first brought you into it? Because, you know, you said like you, you went to the business world, then you came back to it later, but you were writing before the business world. So how did that originate? Well, I mean, yeah, but I, I was in the business and in, in uh, I was in healthcare administration for over 30 years. So I, uh, in, in around 2005, I was still working full time and I, I was going through some hard things at home. My daughter was leave, getting ready to go off to college and I was suffering from, you know, empty nester syndrome issues and, uh, I just felt like it was a time of, you know, really questioning my life. And, and so I was getting ready for work one morning and I was looking in the mirror, drying my hair or something and a line of poetry came to me and I said, oh, that's weird. That is so weird. I knew it was poetry immediately just because of the rhythm and everything. So I rushed in and I typed it down on the computer and then I wrote another line and another line and, another, and I created this really awful poem. And I go like, oh my gosh, did I just write a poem? What? <laughs> it was so funny. And um, I came home that night and tried to edit it. And I, I wrote another one and another one and another one. And it just kept, it snowballed. It like, it, it just snowballed out of me. And I just started, you know, I was writing all this poetry, this really bad poetry. And 
and I just kept writing it and writing it. And then I just would buy poetry books and I would just start reading. And I was just like, suddenly it was like something possessed me. I have no idea why, why after all those years, uh, I started remembering all the poems I'd memorized as a child and um, re reciting them to myself. And so then in 2010 uh, or 20, I think it was 2008, I went back to the MFA program and I said, you know, if I'm going to do this and I fully retired in 2014 and, you know, basically uh, was writing full time at that point. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's a great journey because I think a lot of people are hesitant to get into it. And that's that's someone who didn't, it doesn't even sound like you had a choice. It dragged you in. It did, it did. <laughs> it pulled you into it. Well, one of the first things I did was I took a class with Jamie Dunham at Sinclair, uh, a poetry class. And it was really an amazing class and i step maintained that was in 2005 i've maintained a good relationship with jamie and several other people that i met in that class i did i took one other class with him at sinclair then and i think that might have been when i decided i really wanted to get an mfa at that point mm -hmm. i started doing that while i was still working <laughs> so oh man so there's one last question I wanted to ask you before we go, because you had said, I, this is this is a couple of years ago, so I apologize if you don't remember this offhand, but you did an interview where you were talking about your third collection, which is coming out soon. And you had said that you had wanted it to be a collection of prose, prose poems. And um, it had, that objective has shifted over time. So I'm just curious about how that shift happened and what, you know. Well, it hasn't really, I mean, I, it, it's still, it's pro, I'm still writing prose poems right now. Uh, I, I will probably include some lineated poems in that collection, but uh, in fact, I mentioned Jamie Dunham and Jamie writes strictly in prose poetry and he is, he writes kind of what I would call classic prose poetry and he's helped edit a book of prose poems that I think is uh, kind of a standard and um, in fact, uh, and I also mentioned Eric Pankey and uh, his latest book, or at least the latest one I'm familiar with, Augury, has a lot of prose poems in it. And he said that in somewhere that he had challenged his students to write prose poetry. And so I started and I, I, I had a friend who said to me, I bet you can't use the word swim goggles and swim cap in a poem. And I said, I bet I can. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> yes, I can do that. And I sat down and wrote uh, a prose poem. And I said, I like this. I like this. I like where this is going. And then I, I sat and wrote like 25 of them. So I am uh, well on my way. And I have several lineated ones too that I'm working on, but they're they're primarily pose. And I may turn the lineated ones into prose poems. I've I've sort of have done that with a few of them. Oh, so it will be a collection of fully prose. I'm hoping. I'm hoping to, but okay. it might not be. I don't know yet. I'm not done. I'm about two-thirds done with the book. Okay. So I, I'm gonna I'm actually I am gonna ask a follow-up question. How do you know 
whether it's a prose poem or a lineated poem? Oh, that's a big question. Um, You know, I'd like to say something really esoteric, like the poem will inform you. <laughs> it kind of does. It does. You know, I, I it, it sort that. of does. And <laughs> I, and that just sounds so weird. No. <laughs> but the I mean, poem. It doesn't give you objective guidelines, but right. I think there's, there's a lot of truth in that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the poem tends to find its own form. So, you know, if, as I'm thinking about these as I was in this mode of writing prose poems, I, uh, it gave me a kind of freedom that I don't have in lineated poetry. It gave me the freedom to kind of uh, be a little more, you know, allow me to go off in some tangents now and then that you can't exactly, or that I don't do in lineated po poetry. And so I sort of liked that. And I like that about prose poetry. It does give me that freedom. It really can be whatever you want it to be. And that's, uh, you know, that's kind of exciting and fun. And I, I took these poems and I broke them into three separate poems. And so there are three, one's called um, Even Turn and then Dead Reckoning and then Vagaries. And all of them have been published, all 25. So I'm real excited about that. Well, that's great. <laughs> you know, right? All right. Well, would you like to read a poem before we get going? Sure. You know what? I could read one of those prose poems if you want. Please. That would be astounding. This is the one that uses uh, goggles and swim cap in it. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> and it's from the poem titled Even Turn. And uh, <clears throat> this poem, and these poems, the individual poems in this section of about, I think this one is about five or six poems, have, they don't have titles, but the whole entire poem is called Even Turn. Blue violet is not the culmination of sky, but rather liquidity experienced as temperament. The eye always straining at it seems, it seems to see blue within the visual spectrum. Sometimes blue disguises itself as blue gray in the way a day can feel weighty, in the way its varied hues create unwanted choice. Yet a shaft of blue light represents the hawk's best vantage. Sense it, bring with you goggles and swim cap. Dive into the blue pool of your heart's most secret chamber, a place so devoid of aftermath it tingles. Oh, I love it. <laughs> that's wonderful. <laughs> well, that's great. All right. Well, thank you so very much for coming on. Thank you so, so very much for asking questions um, or answering my questions. <laughs> I asked a few. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been Poetry Spotlight, a production of the Ohio Poetry Association. Please follow the OPI on Twitter, on, at Ohio Poetry, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ohio Poetry. A transcript of this episode can be found on the OPA blog. Visit the Ohio Poetry Association.org for more information. And Grace, sincerely, thank you again. Uh, thank you, Jeremy. It was so delightful. I had so much fun. It's good. Good thing you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you.